Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with the University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor Keith Finley. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Finley. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you. Professor Finley is here today to discuss his recent work, including two articles that were published in the 2018 Seton Hall Law Review, entitled Expert From the Experts, Inference, and Innocence Symposium Issue. Those two articles are The Science and Law Underlying Post-Conviction Challenges to Shaken Baby Syndrome Convictions, a response to Professor Inwinkle Reed, and Reducing Error in the Criminal Justice System. Additionally, Professor Finley served as the co-chair on the Madison Police Department Policy and Procedure Review Ad Hoc Committee, which released its recommendations earlier this year. Well, I've talked enough, I think, so let's try and interview Professor Finley now. (laughs) To begin, let's hear a little bit about your professional background. What led you to writing about criminal justice issues? Well, my scholarly interest actually grew out of a practice orientation. Um, I began my career sort of in a mixed role between practice and teaching in that I I was a clinical professor, clinical instructor here at the UW Law School um, in a program called the Legal Assistance to Institutionalized Persons Program where I was supervising law students engaged in representing criminal uh, defendants and people convicted of crimes in, in prisons around the state. Um, After a few years of doing that, I actually left and became a public defender. So I saw firsthand through both of those experiences sort of what the the criminal justice system was all about, how it treated people. Um, And after six years, six and a half years of doing that, I came back to the law school again in the clinics um, and this time created the Wisconsin Innocence Project, which in 1998 was only the third such project in the country. And at that time, we were still sort of in the in in the the very beginning stages of uh, innocence awareness, of innocence conscience consci- consciousness in this country, and there was a, we were sort of emerging from this era era in which we sort of believed that you know wrongful convictions were surely there because it's a human system, but they had to be freakishly rare, so anomalous as to be of no concern. And my work with the innocence movement sort of opened my eyes to the fact that actually there's a lot of error in the criminal justice system, and there are a lot more innocent people in prison than we had thought, and that it's not just the product of anomalies or individual human errors, but it's actually the result of a lot of systemic features baked into the way we do criminal justice in this country. And so the more I worked on that, the more I became interested in sort of those big picture systemic questions. And that led to starting to do research. And that led to writing and publication. And eventually that led to me making the move from the clinical track to the tenure track so that I could spend more time research and writing primarily focused on error in the criminal justice system. And here we are today to talk just about that. Yes. Excellent. So one topic you have written on extensively is shaking baby syndrome. Uh, Can you explain what that term is and why it is so often a point of contention in the courtroom? Sure. Uh, Shaken baby syndrome, uh, which the pediatricians now prefer that we call abusive head trauma, um, is a medical legal hypothesis that children who, uh, who are injured, who suffer serious brain injury, often but not always without external signs of of harm um, must have been injured through an abusive process that the original hypothesis was that it had to have been violent shaking that the the parent or caregiver violently shook the child who you know is because infants have uh, disproportionately large heads and weak neck muscles the head would flop back and forth 
making the brain slosh around inside the brain, rupturing bridging veins, tearing axons, and causing ultimately serious brain injury and oftentimes death without leaving any external signs of injury. Uh, that hypothesis has been expanded now to abusive head trauma to accommodate new evidence suggesting, number one, that perhaps shaking alone cannot generate sufficient forces to do this, and also, too, that impact certainly does. So the, the new term encompasses that. But basically, it's a hypothesis that doctors looking at primarily these brain injuries, sometimes associated with a few others, and no other evidence can determine not only what the medical conditions are that the child suffers from, but also the conduct and indeed mental state of an external third party so that they can determine that the person, that the child was abused uh, and that it occurred not accidentally, but with some uh, criminal state of mind. That's an amazing development to say you can actually extrapolate from the injuries the criminal state of mind of who was involved. Yeah, here. and that's part of what underlies all of the controversies here because there's controversies about the underlying science, whether it's ever been validated, but also controversies about the proper role of the medical expert when they enter into the legal arena where the ultimate determination of mental state of, and conduct of a third party is not that of the doctor, but of the jury. Um, and so there's a, a lot of debates raging about the validity of the medical assumptions because, frankly, they've never been scientifically validated. And then the role of the expert in the courtroom. Right, it's high stakes, and there's a lot of people that have a very high, a very uh, strong opinion about what is going on here. Yeah, it's really remarkable how how strong the opinions are, and it's particularly in the medical world that the, the the physicians have sort of divided into these into these polar camps where they despise one another and can, can barely communicate. Mm -hmm. It just shows you how how passionate people are about how important this whole thing is. And well, sure, sure. I mean, you're talking about some very hot-button issues, including the health and safety of our most vulnerable mem members of our communities, babies and, and young right. children. Right. I I have a, a seven-month-old at home, so I, I completely understand sure. why this is such a hot-button hot issue. I would, right. not be ha I would want it investigated fully in, in the right yeah. way. Yeah. On the other hand, you can imagine if, as a parent, if you your child were to die, what a hot button issue would be if then the, the authorities were to turn around and say, and you killed that child when you know you didn't. Yeah, right. I mean, it's devastating mm -hmm. either way. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, I, hopefully I do not find myself yes. in that situation. I, I certainly <laughs> hope that for you, Chris. <laughs> I'll find a good criminal defense attorney. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think we might know a few around uh, here. We can probably connect you. All right, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, with that, turning towards the two symposium issues first, uh, your Reducing Error article focuses on challenging some previously established methods that were designed to reduce harm. In that article, you find that many of the underlying assumptions would actually increase the harm to the innocent in an effort to imprison the guilty. What are your recommendations in that article to reform criminal justice? Well, first, a little background about that. This is really, I was invited to write a response to some work done by Professor Larry Loudon, who was essentially making the argument that the focus on wrongful convictions has distracted us from what he views to be a more serious problem, that is the acquittal of the guilty. Um, and so he, his prescription or his diagnosis in prescription was that um, we're too lenient um, and that our system gives too much to criminal defendants and lets too many go free um, and therefore to his prescription then is that to address this problem um, 
he was suggesting some tweaks to the system, or more than tweaks, some major overhauls that would make it easier to convict more people, such as uh, reducing the burden of proof in some cases, a variety of things like that, uh, that he was trying to d justify that on balance would, reduce, would produce less aggregate harm. Um, so my piece responds to that and sort of tries to go through and explain how his uh, perception about the, the, the weighing of the various harms of wrongful, conviction, uh, wrongful convictions and what he calls wrongful acquittals is sort of uh, misses the mark. Um, but I take it as an opportunity to go beyond that and really take on what is a common, what I think is a misperception that is, uh, that is conveyed in his article, and that is that there is inevitably and always a trade-off between protecting the innocent and, for, and freeing too many guilty people. That, 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 that public safety and, and, and protecting the innocent are at odds with one another in every instance. Um, and instead, I try to make the point, that, which I've made before in some other work as well, that really the ultimate goal here is accuracy. And if we focus on accuracy in our criminal um, investigations and adjudications, that actually works, is a win-win. Mm -hmm. There's no trade-off there at all. If we're improving the diagnosticity of our processes, presumably, and, and I think quite truthfully, we can better convict the guilty while at the same time better protecting the innocent. Um, and so I look at, in that paper, there, in, through that lens, look at um, some of the, the standard um, the, the, the list uh, of recommendations that emerge from the innocence uh, literature things like improving eyewitness identification procedures, things like changing the way police interrogate to minimize the risks of false confessions, um, uh, improving forensic sciences. All of those kinds of reforms, if we understand them properly, are reforms that will simply make our eyewitness identifications more reliable or to ensure that when we get confessions they are truthful and don't steer us away from the real perpetrator. Uh, and so it, I, I take this as an opportunity to sort of reframe the debate about, it's not about trade-offs. It's about, let's look for the most reliable system we can to do both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people will say that it's either you get everyone that's guilty in, j in jail or in prison, and they sometimes you catch some innocent people, but we got the guilty people in there. Whereas other people will say, no, that's not the wrong way, and these are just diametrically opposed viewpoints. You're kind of rising above that and saying, we can fix both of these at the same time because it's a win-win if you're more accurate overall. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's great. I, uh, I wish I could rebut any arguments with that, but I think that sounds like a great proposal. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so let's talk about your second article on the symposium issue. This one talks about the use of scientific evidence in abusive head trauma cases. The article especially looks at shifted science that can change the consensus view on the effects of abusive head trauma and how they are challenged post-conviction. What do you suggest as a solution where shifting medical opinions impact legal decisions? Um, this is a really complicated question because there's so many components that, that I go. I had a hard time even getting it out of my mouth. <laughs> there's so many different components to the answer here. Um, part of it is just simply understanding, to one degree, the, the nature of the shaken baby syndrome abusive head trauma prosecutions. These are, these are really remarkable prosecutions, um, almost unparalleled uh, in the criminal justice world, given that they are prosecutions that are, it, it, the kind that I'm talking about, that are entirely science dependent. That is, the entire case rises or falls with the validity of the science. Mm -hmm. The physician is called upon to diagnose what's wrong with the child, what caused it, um, 
and then and, 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 and so so the, the physician will come in and say this child has brain injury it was caused by um, shaking or shaking with impact or whatever it may be so that's the what right then they will also talk about the, so that's the actus reus in the terms of the law um, right. they will then talk about the mental state as well um, and it had to have been done with such force that it could not have been accidental Therefore, it had to be knowing, intentional, reckless, whatever the requisite mental state is, the, the, the mens rea. Mm -hmm. so, and then the final component of the criminal prosecution is, well, who did it? Right? We, we know what happened, and we know what mental state the person did. Uh, then who did it? And here the physician actually pretty much fills the, the, the field with there as well, because the physicians would traditionally testify that a child so injured would not be capable of of any lucidity that the child would become immediately comatose flaccid unresponsive mm -hmm. and therefore last person with the child is the one who did it so there's your whole case mm -hmm. right there no other evidence needed right. right the only other case that approximates that that i can think of is the old arson cases where the, the, the arson expert would come in and essentially do the same thing so these are cases where the science is really the whole thing and therefore, we have to make sure that we get the science right. And yet, when you look at the research here, because it's so very hard to study the effects of shaking an infant, I mean, you don't have to think very hard to realize that you can't do randomized controlled studies where no. you shake some children or yeah. batter some children and see what happens, right? Well, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Because of that, though, the research base is really quite weak. Um, and it has never been really adequately uh, validated. Um, and so over the last uh, nearly 20 years, um, a constant re uh, evolutions in the scientific uh, literature has raised all kinds of challenges to every one of those three legs of this three-legged right. stool that we've been talking about. Um, we know that um, we know now that, for example, that a whole lot of things other than shaking or uh, or impact can cause the telltale signs that previously were associated exclusively to abuse. We know that it's biomechanically unlikely that shaking can do it. Um, we know that um, it turns out that short distance falls can cause this. So it doesn't have to be the massive kinds of, of um, force that physicians used to believe. It can, in fact, be accidental. Um, and therefore, the mens rea element is gone. Mm -hmm. And we now know that in many of these cases, there is, in fact, a lucid interval of minutes, hours, even days. And therefore, we can't time it very well. So the science is, is shifting. Now, all of this is contentious. All of this is debated hotly in the medical community. but. What this paper was about was responding to a claim that you have to be able to come in and prove, in order to overturn a conviction, you have to be able to, should be, have to come in and, and prove that the original scientific hypothesis was wrong, or to prove some alternative cause. And what this paper was talking about was saying, well, actually, that's a misapplication. That's a misunderstanding of what the standard is and indeed what the standard ought to be. Because when a, when a conviction rests so heavily on scientific evidence and that science shifts, even if that shift is just one to raise uncertainty where previously the jury was told there was no uncertainty, that that might be enough to create the reasonable doubt that that needs to be re-examined. So to answer your question finally, <laughs> what do we do about this? Number one, we need better science. 
that's not just shaken baby, but that runs the gamut. All of the forensic disciplines that have been used in our criminal cases. We know this not just from me and critics of the scientific world, but we know this from from work by the National Academy of Sciences, the nation's preeminent eminent scientific authority in 2009, uh, that published a, a groundbreaking report, basically confirming that none of the pattern matching disciplines, fingerprints, bite marks, hair analysis, uh, shoe prints, ballistics, none of those except DNA testing have much of a scientific foundation. Wow. Uh, that was echoed again in 2016 with, by the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology uh, in their report to President Obama. So we, we know that the scientific foundations are weak. We need more research. We need to make sure that upstream of the courtroom the science that is used to convict or exonerate people is is actually good, solid, reliable science. The next thing we need is to, we need courts to actually uh, implement the, the demands of, of Daubert versus Merrill Dow, the case that, that requires courts to screen out inadequately validated and unreliable scientific evidence. The empirical record has been that the courts have failed miserably on that in criminal cases. They do a much better job of screaming, screening out invalid science in civil cases where money's at stake, but where life and liberty are at stake, the courts have failed utterly. Part of that is because of inertia. We've been relying on this stuff for so long. Part of that is because judges and lawyers are scientifically illiterate. I say that not as an insult, but as simply an assert assertion that, hey, look, most of us went to law school because we don't do science, right? right. Numbers can be scary. Yeah, you bet. Um, and so part of that is because the defense bar has failed until recently to learn the science and to make the aggressive challenges. So in any event, part of the response has to be that the courts have to be more aggressive in screening out bad science, both to make sure that the bad science never gets in the courtroom, but also to apply the pressure to force the forensic disciplines to get their act together, mm. to produce the science, to make it admissible so that it will be reliable both for convicting the guilty and acquitting the innocent. Um, and the, and the, the, the next thing we have to do is we have to recognize in a post-conviction context, and this is really what this paper was about, that when a conviction rests on scientific propositions and those scientific propositions are then undermined or seriously questioned in ways that a jury never had the chance to consider, the system has to be flexible enough to recognize that and, and dispense with the, the, this very prominent notion of finality that otherwise makes it almost impossible to overturn convictions. We've got to understand that when you rest on science, science is never final. Mm -hmm. Science is always contingent, evolving, um, changing, uh, correcting itself, and when the law rests on it, science, the law tends to put a, a greater emphasis on finality, but when the law rests on science, we have to adapt the scientific understanding that this could change. It's and a very when it does change, we got to change with it. That's a very dangerous thing to have the law resting while the science is moving, the science <laughs> is underlying the law, exactly. law falls behind, and now someone's convicted on bad science, or in this case, just more broadly, bad evidence. Right, right, right. right. And I, you're, when you discussed inertia, I think that's a very powerful argument here, because people are so used to saying, well, we got their fingerprints, we've got their hair, and what have you, and they're, they're just so used to it that they're inertia, yeah. they're in the rut, that's what's used, and that's just what it well, is. Well, and when you think about inertia in a legal context, it's not just the natural inertia that we all human beings all sort of are affected by. Mm -hmm. But inertia is another way of saying precedent. Mm 
and that is something that the legal system depends upon right, right? it's mm -hmm. it's a it's an aspirational aspect of what we do mm -hmm. and so that's why this is so difficult is is because we're saying to the legal system your typical mode of operating relying on precedent mm -hmm. and leaving settled things alone mm -hmm. has to yield when you're talking about dispositions that rest on something that is inevitably and always um, shifting and that will be very challenging for a lot of people yeah. but it is something that is if you were convicted on bad science I would want to be able to bring that up in a post-conviction world and say this is no longer right. valid we have to overturn that precedent right and that would be very difficult right. for maybe a lot, a lot of people in the legal world I think if it's a system of criminal justice then getting it right has to ultimately be the the goal and sometimes getting it right means you dispense with finality. Right. Doing the hard work to get it right. 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 So I think I know the answer to this next question. Were there any challenges <laughs> that you uh, encountered during the research or writing process? Well, yeah, you know, there are always challenges mm -hmm. um, to doing this. But more, and, and, and so the, the, probably the, the biggest challenge in, in this context is simply dealing with the 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 polarized nature of these issues they're so contentious um, that um, navigating that field is a challenge but more than challenges I would say that these are presented opportunities for learning mm -hmm. right every time you write a paper you do the research you you learn and, and that's certainly been the case here challenge is another word for education that's this right way. that's you're right. feeling challenges because you're learning something that's sure a good mm -hmm. thing very. That's my. That's why I'm, I'm gleaming this away from all the my professors and faculty. I'm. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> all right. Good. Uh, so both of these articles are responses to scholarship from other professors. Mm -hmm. What responses have your articles received so far? Well, are, you know, they were both responses to scholarship by other professors. The, f the first one was actually a symposium where Larry Loudon was presenting, and so we were there in the same room, and it was a very cordial debate. Um, uh, and, and so the response has been... Um, from him was certainly quite cordial and, mm -hmm. and professional, but from others has been really largely one to say, to, to sort of reaffirm the notion that what I was saying made perfect sense, so I'm very gratified by that. The, mm -hmm. the other one is actually the more, more interesting tale, I think, um, and that is because um, it was a response to a paper written by Professor M. Winkelried, who is one of the luminaries in the field of evidence law, and it was a sort of a friendly criticism of what he'd written because it was largely uh, agreeing with with what he had said, but but sort of digging a little deeper on this one issue about shifted science and particularly in shaken baby cases. Um, and and um, I think his his response has been again very professional and and but I think really quite appreciative of engaging in the debate. The bigger response, and it's. It has been that those people is that this and keep in mind this is one paper in a series that I've written mm -hmm. on this topic so I'll sort of lump them all together in this and the response has been um, as one would expect for those who are critics of the shaken baby hypothesis has been great appreciation and a lot of citations and right. that kind of thing because mm -hmm. it's useful to them mm -hmm. um, from those who are who are uh, are defenders of the hypothesis um, I you know I can't say this is a direct response but I think it's in part a response but there has been a, a continuing evolution of, of additional scholarship or additional publication of articles um, engaging in the kinds of things uh, that, that I was writing about there and some of that literature 
um, has has gone so far as to try to sort of um, marginalize anyone who criticizes uh, criticizes the this the, the shaken baby syndrome abusive head trauma uh, hypothesis and to I think quite cynically and, and inaccurately try to suggest that there is actually no dispute at all when the you know the, the literature is replete with and the, and the litigation is replete with this so um, it's the kind of thing you would expect when entering into what something that should be an objective scientific inquiry that has become politicized mm-hmm. and you get the kind of political response you would expect in that arena. Fraught with people that don't want to engage or just want to directly challenge in other ways. It sounds like you've had some very cordial uh, engagements, though, as well, which is great. Oh, absolutely. Some very cordial engagements. Um, also, not so cordial, but mm-hmm. that goes with the territory. Right. That's to be expected here. Right. And sometimes if you don't get that when you write a more controversial, not controversial, but something that's out there that could be controversial mm-hmm. and you don't hear anything, maybe... That's a bad sign. So this, yeah, I'll take right. it as a good sign. That, that's that right. That's right. Engaging. At least it's it's making some sort of an impact in the world. So which is what I'm hoping for. I'm not I'm not writing just to satisfy my own curiosity. I, I hope to make an impact in right. the world. And I, I it's safe to say that you are. Well, so that's that very know. kind of you. <laughs> With that, let's turn to the last piece that we're going to sure. talk about here. So the recommendations from the Madison Police Department Policy and Procedure Review. First, why was this ad hoc committee created? So. The city of Madison has a long and proud tradition of progressive policing, um, and we're, we have we can be very thankful for that here in the city and very proud of what our police department has done. That is not to say, however, the police department is without its challenges, its problems, and those challenges and problems came to a head within the last four or five years, in the era in which nationwide uh, the public was beginning to take note of of police uses of force, deadly force, primarily against unarmed black men, young black men. And Madison had a couple of those. Um, And the community became alarmed uh, and was concerned about use of force, use of deadly force, about racial disparities, because um, despite whatever one may say about the politics here, the reality is it's a very... The, the community has enormous racial disparities, and that includes in the, the, the criminal justice system, starting with the police and going all the way through sentencing. Um, and so there are large segments of the community, particularly communities of color uh, and other minority groups, that were very distrustful of the police. There was, we were sort of in, a, in a, what was perceived as a crisis of confidence in those quarters. And so the Madison uh, Common Council decided to do something about it. And they uh, created what they called this ad hoc committee. It's a long title. I don't even remember what all the words are. But it's mm-hmm. basically an ad hoc community review everything about the Madison Police Department. But it was really motivated by these concerns about lack of, of trust in, in minority communities and low-income communities and about use of force. Those were the dominant uh, forces behind it. And um, the committee um, began its work, what was it, three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. And... I guess it was probably four years ago, just about, and um, uh, hired a consulting firm out of California to do an in-depth review of the police department. We received their report about two years ago. Um, 
with 146 specific recommendations for reform. And since then, the committee has been working. And for the last two years, I've been co-chair of that committee. And we've been going through every one of those recommendations, reviewing them, uh, engaging with the police department, with community members, um, and then taking recommendations from other members of the community in total. And so in this past September, the committee finally issued its final report um, finding a lot of things that are being done right, finding other areas where, where improvements could be made, um, and ultimately issuing 177 specific recommendations that are written up in this lengthy report that we've just published. So obviously 177 recommendations, that is a lot of recommendations. Are there any specific ones that you most hope the police department adopts? Yeah, the, sort of the centerpiece of our recommendations is the recommendation for the city to create an office of an independent monitor that answers to a, a civilian review board. The idea, and the reason this is the centerpiece of our recommendations is because the idea behind this is both theoretical and practical. The theoretical is that in a free and democratic society, when the citizens yield some of their autonomy, some of their independence to a police force that they, we give extraordinary powers to, to lock us up, to stop us, to search us, to shoot us if need be, right? And in a free and democratic society, therefore, the, 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 the people the, uh, should and must be the ones who control how they are policed. And the most direct way we can do that, we thought, was through an independent monitor outside the police department who's there to review everything they do, who answers to a civilian review board, so that it is really the people who are reviewing and bringing to light what's going on and making recommendations for changes. So that's sort of the theoretical side of it. Mm -hmm. The more practical is that if there's a breakdown in trust, which there has been in some communities, the best way to, we thought, to repair that would be to create a direct link between those communities and the police department and a way for their voices to be heard in the way the police department is run. And that's through that civilian review board. So that does that. And the final reason why we thought this was so important is that you know, we didn't want this to be a report with 177 recommendations that go sit on a shelf somewhere. Right. Um, and I must say, to the Madison Police Department's great credit, it has not sat on the shelf. The police department has already implemented a lot of those recommendations on its own initiative. Right. But to ensure that the rest of them are implemented and to re ensure that this is not just a one-off, but rather an ongoing process where we're continuing to scan the police department and look for problems and make recommendations, um, we thought we needed someone who's responsible for assessing the police department's progress towards meeting these goals, reshaping those goals, resetting them, whatever, and that needed to be an independent authority, and that's what we thought the map. The, so so in, in other words, in order to effectuate all of the other recommendations we made, we thought it was critical to, to establish this office of an independent monitor with a civilian review board. Right, provides a much stronger link for communication between those who have lost the faith and trust in the police department with the police department themselves. And a mechanism for accountability. Right. To make sure that the police department is doing everything the city uh, wants it to, to be doing. It is and very not because of a lack of trust, but because people are busy, things get lost. Mm -hmm. You know, there needs to be a constant reminder, a constant presence there to make sure that everything is is going as it should be. And it is very easy for a lot of people to say that, oh, those, the police department, they, who are they accountable to? And kind of get disgruntled about that. This would provide an opportunity to say, well, that's who they are accountable to, and they can kind of keep tabs and keep sure. updated yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you believe some of these recommendations could be adopted by police departments across the country? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I identified our number one priority that that, but there is a lot of recommendations in there about um, training and revising standards on use of force, use of deadly force, on how to respond to people in mental health crises. Um, these are all recommendations that are out there in the policing literature. Um, that are being debated elsewhere. And so th there is, a, I mean, I took this report, which was committee written, I was part of that committee wrote, and I posted it uh, online in my scholarship, in part because I thought it does, in fact, provide a lot of, of good information and a blueprint that a lot of other communities could look to as they try to address the policing issues in their communities as well. So absolutely. And, 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 um, much of this is stuff that has been tried elsewhere. The independent monitor, sometimes called an independent auditor, that's a model that's been created in other places. In some places it's worked well, in others it has worked not very well at all. We paid attention to that and looked to what are the features that make it work well and what are the features that, did, that make it less effective and tried to incorporate the former into, into ours. So I hope that it can be something that will be useful to other communities. Much like the shifting science from the abuse of head trauma, the way that the police are monitored and communicating with the independent monitoring is something that changes. And sure. so you want to try and you make sure it stays up to date there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, see how I'm connecting this all together. You're, you're just bringing, making all these connections I'm, I'm, I hadn't thought of. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so adept at this, these interviews. <laughs> so you mentioned you posted the report online. Where can people find more about your work? Well, I would say the, the two best places to go would be to my webpage uh, at the UW uh, law, uh, law School. Mm -hmm. website so just you know www.law.wisc.edu and then mm -hmm. click on my faculty link mm -hmm. the other place to go is to um, SSR my SSRN mm -hmm. uh, listing so just go to SSRN.com and search for my name and you'll find most of this stuff there that's available for download and we'll make that even easier by posting links to your SSRN page and to the repository page that has all your publications. That's right. I should well. have mentioned the. You can probably answer that question better than I can about where to find stuff on the repository. That's true. But I want to give you the opportunity okay. first. Okay, good. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Finley. Uh, as always, we'll be sure to link to Professor Finley's scholarship on our podcast page. A big thank you to Professor Finley for being here today to discuss not one, but three recent publications. You have run the marathon of our <laughs> podcasting for this time. Uh, those three publications, again, are The Science and Law Underlying Post-Conviction Challenges to Shaken Baby Syndrome Convictions, a response to Professor Inwinkle Reed, and Reducing Error in the Criminal Justice System. Those are both published in the Seton Hall Law Review, and the Madison Police Department's Policy and Procedure Review Ad Hoc Committee Final Reports. And thanks to all you listeners out there for listening and subscribing to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast. Professor Finley's scholarship is linked below, right below this podcast on our website at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. That will take you to his SSRN page and to his page on the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. You can subscribe to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast in the Apple iTunes Store, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or find our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thanks again for listening and join us next time as Professor Tanya Brito sits down with me to discuss their new article about the child support debt bubble. Until then, happy researching.